You're listening to the Wandering Stoic Podcast. Where would the world be if religion hadn't created the Dark Ages? Now, this is something that I hear commonly spoken about among uh, atheists, atheist circles, science circles. They look at the Dark Ages, the suppression of science, they, they look at where the West was with Greece and, uh, and early Rome, and say, oh my God, look at all of this advancement. Look at all of this that we learned, that we understood. And then Christianity comes along, takes over, and boom, it's stagnation for a thousand years, no progress, no nothing. And imagine, you know, we'd be a thousand years ahead in technology if only the Dark Ages hadn't happened. And unfortunately, this is a really astoundingly ignorant and actually racist and Eurocentric uh, way of thinking. And now I, I don't blame people for thinking this. People, people base their opinions off of what they know or what they believe they know, what they've grown up learning. And if you grow up in America, at least, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about growing up in Europe, but this seems to be a common belief, so I suspect it's probably not all that different. If you grow up in America, then you learn about, you know, science is 100% the product of uh, European culture, of Renaissance. Uh, it, it has brought the world forward and, you know, and basically it was on pause. You had, you had the Greeks developing, you know, early science, and then it went on pause for the Dark Ages, and then boom, it's picked back up again right where Greece left off, and all of a sudden we get modern science, and we get all this technology, and we get all this medicine, and, you know, it's, it's extending people's lives and, and all of these great things, right? And that's what we learn. That's what we believe. We maybe we learn a little bit about some contributions from uh, Arabic mathematics and optics, and you know, little bits there. Uh, maybe if you're really lucky, you learn that you know China invented paper, the compass, the printing press, gunpowder, and all of these things. And so, okay, you know, there's there's some contribution from other cultures, but predominantly, it's all Europe. Right, it's all it's all Greco-Roman, you know, Greek philosophy, uh, and then European advancement once Europe picks back up where it left off. Uh, this just isn't true, though. Not even remotely close to being true. So the reality is, is that the rest of the world did not stop advancing when Europe entered the Dark Ages, and on top of that, pretty much the entire foundation of the modern world, of industrialization, of all of these things, were actually invented in China. Now, there are contributions from other cultures. I'm not going to be, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, hide those, erase those. Uh, I, I'm quite confident that, I, I know that the Middle East, I know that the Arab world had significant accomplishments, significant innovations. Uh, I know, especially when it comes to mathematics, uh, I'm quite confident that the that India as well contributed quite a bit, and I'm sure there are many others, many others that I I don't know about. Okay, what I do know about is Chinese contributions, though. 
That's what I've studied in particular. So that's what I'm going to talk about. And the other thing I know is that the contributions from China, the innovations from China are far, far, far more. I mean, so much more that it's not an exaggeration to say that China over the last 2000 years has been more innovative than any other culture or all the other cultures put together. And before you think that I'm just, you know, in love with China and, I, and I'm trying to say that China is better than everyone else, I'm not saying that at all. This is just simply a fact of where the innovation came from. And later in the podcast, I'll talk about why I think that that innovation happened in China in particular, because I do believe that we're all the same. People are people everywhere. There's really no fundamental difference between us. And innovation is possible everywhere. And so we're going to need to look at and understand why this happened in China. But, you know, when we're talking about these things, it's it, the difference in the advancement of where China got to compared to the rest of the world. It's dramatic. I mean, really, really dramatic. We're talking a thousand years, 1400 years, 1500 years ahead. And it's not just in a few areas. It's in science. It's in technology. It's in chemistry. It's in field theory. It's in algebra, okay, mathematics, astronomy, all across the board. In general, China was way, way, way ahead. Some things that China came up with uh, in, you know, 300 AD were not, uh, or in the third century, so, you know, 200 to 300 AD, uh, they were not developed in, in the West until the 17th, 18th century, okay? It's a big, big, big difference. Uh, it really can't be emphasized enough when it when it comes to navigation, when it comes to farming, when it comes to uh, waterworks, right? Using hydropower, all of these things. Now, there were some areas that China did not really pick up on. China wasn't really into geometry for a very very long time. They their way of thinking was more algebraic, right? So it was in algebra that they really excelled. However, even without this geometry, they were able to come up with these incredible engineering works. Uh, the the first the first chain drive, the first uh, you know you you've got the the clocks, uh, the timekeeping, a long time, a thousand years ahead. All of these things that that a lot of people in America, a lot of people in the West think were invented in Europe first were not. They were invented a long, long time before in China, and. We also have to wonder, were they independently invented in the West? And, and probably some of them were. But a lot of these things, we have a lot of evidence of the flow of this technology. For uh, 1,500, 1,700 years, the flow of technology went from China through India, through the Middle East, through, across the Silk Road, and went from the East to the West. That's where it came. And so most likely a lot of these inventions uh, that we look at as the first example in the West were merely copies of things that, that were discovered, uh, things that were invented first in the East. They get access to diagrams, to drawings. Uh, travelers see it. You did have actually a lot of travel between the East and the West. People were not in these isolated groups. In fact, when you look at the human race and you look back over you know, 100,000 years, 200,000 years, 
we actually have abundant evidence of trade routes that spanned for thousands and thousands of miles. People were not isolated. This idea that, that different groups you know, came up in these different areas and, and were isolated from others, that, that really doesn't appear to be the case at all. Uh, except for very rare in instances, perhaps uh, Aboriginal Australians uh, were somewhat isolated. But for the most part, you don't really have uh, this isolation. In fact, you have uh, you have people traveling and you have people, uh, you know, having kids together and, and all of this exchange, the genetic exchange, the cultural exchange, this trade exchange going back for a very, very long time. Multi multiculturalism actually is far more core to humanity and to humans' history uh, than isolationism. So with all these things, all of these things developed in China, I recommend reading that uh, there's a short book uh, published in 1981 by Joseph Needham, and I believe it's called Science in Traditional China. Uh, that's based on his longer series of works, Science and Technology in China, that's like 25 volumes. Uh, there's new textbooks that have been put together in recent years uh, that take, take this work from Joseph Needham. Uh, he was a biochemist, fell in love with a, a Chinese woman. His autobi or his biography, not auto, his biography, uh, The Man Who Loved China, is a fantastic biography. I really recommend uh, either reading it or listening to it. I listen to it on Audible. It's it's great, and it tells this story of how you know Joseph Needham started investigating this stuff and started making all these discoveries and really changed how, in at least history academia, how we talk about the history of science and technology in China. Uh, and what he discovered was far more than even he predicted. And a lot of people in China didn't even know about this history. They were, they were unaware of this. Uh, that, that's a bit complicated as to why, but you know, this was happening after China sort of had a, a fall. It had been at the top, and then it came, really came crashing down. And especially in the early parts of the 20th century, there was this desire to you know, blame everything on Confucianism, on Neo-Confucianism, the civil surface exam. Uh, and I don't, I don't think actually that's where the blame will be. That's perhaps another, uh, another podcast episode about why, what, what took down China. So you, you really don't have, there, there's actually a lot of political motivation in China to sort of ignore and neglect and pretend like this history didn't happen, which might seem really weird to Westerners who, you know, Europe and the West and America are, are eager to take credit for anything and everything, even when they don't deserve any credit for that. So this idea that the that the world that that science and technology just picked up where the Greeks let off is entirely false. Uh, the reality is, is all this technology, the idea of science, this idea of using observation, right, of using empirical evidence, uh, that actually, I think there's really good evidence to say that that comes from the Neo-Confucians. So around in the 13th century, this was, uh, Neo-Confucianism came around during the, the 10th century. Okay, and the, it was really invented, it was first thought of in during the Tang Dynasty, but then it got to its height during the Song Dynasty. So it had been, this had been really thriving in China for about 300 years, two, 300 years 
when the mid-13th century comes along. And you have Roger Bacon. Now, not Francis Bacon, Roger Bacon. He disappeared. He, he was actually the first one to write about gunpowder in the West. Uh, this was uh, in the mid-1240s. He writes about gunpowder. Most likely, he saw uh, fireworks, probably a firework demonstration. He was heavily involved with the Franciscan monks. He later became a Franciscan, uh, part of the, the Franciscan group. And he, uh, we know that they were traveling. They, they had contact with China during that time. You got the Silk Road really thriving at that point in time. And so he most likely saw fireworks that had come over, and he, he describes this. And this is around the mid-1240s. And then Roger Bacon disappears from 1247 to 1256. Nobody really knows where he went. Uh, there's a, a couple indications of him cropping up in, in some places during that time, but we really don't know where he went where that, during that time. And I, I think there's good reason why we'll never know uh, why it was hidden, why that, that information wasn't recorded, why he didn't come out with it back when he came back, because there was a lot of concern about heresy at that time, especially among the Franciscans. So... We know when he came back in 1256 that he'd studied optics extensively, uh, probably Arab optics. Optics had been a big part of uh, both Arab and Chinese uh, uh, research for a very long time. And optics was far more advanced in these, er these places than it was in Europe. We know that what he mentions, he specifically mentions, Roger Bacon mentions that he visited the sapiens, the wise ones. But he doesn't say who these wise ones were. I believe we have a lot of good, you know, good reason to believe that it was at the bare minimum, it was Arab scholars. He talks, when he comes back, he sort of excoriates the, the university system in Europe. He says, you know, nobody in Europe is talking about optics, you know, at anywhere near the level. He, he's really sort of insulting. And he goes on to revamp the university system. I mean, he makes big changes and sort of sparks that that early stages of the development of the scientific method, which would go on to be, you know, much more refined over the next couple hundred years. And then, you know, Francis Bacon comes up with uh, probably, you know, the closest towards the modern scientific method, the Baconian method. And, you know, it keeps getting refined over that. Philosophy of science keeps going, keeps going after that. But it really sort of started with Roger Bacon uh, after he comes back from his travels, wherever the hell he, he was during that time. And because the things that he was presenting, so Neo-Confucianism had sort of rejected, they'd rejected the, the magic of Buddhism and Taoism and said, no, we can understand the world. We can understand the natural world through empirical observation. That sounds pretty much like the scientific method to me. And, and this was what they were really doing. And the, the advancements during these times are absolutely incredible. The advancements in metallurgy and chemistry. You, you really have your early days of pharmacology. Uh, from, ever since Galen, and Galen, uh, the, he was a, a doctor. He was uh, uh, the doctor for Marcus Aurelius in Rome. You know, he'd written about poisons and whatnot and stuff. So people in Europe were really opposed to any sort of medicine from, from consuming plants, herbs, chemicals, things like that. And so that, that really made medicine stagnate in, in the West. 
modern medicine, as we know, is all largely chemical, chemical and surgery, but it's uh, chemical plays a huge part of that. And they weren't able to make those advancements because people were really, really opposed to it. But they didn't have that opposition in China. And so they were, they'd learned a lot about pharmacology during that time. And it was actually bringing over that pharmacology from China that, uh, that inspired this new wave of medicine in the West. But anyway, this, so this Neo-Confucian approach, this empirical approach to uh, to studying the natural world, that was old news in the Neo-Confucian world. In fact, Neo-Confucians at that time believed that the universe was composed of, uh, I'm going to call it energy. They use slightly different words, uh, but the, the idea, the way that they're thinking is really along these lines, that the universe is composed of energy. Now, when energy condenses, it becomes matter which anybody familiar with physics today will say, damn, that's remarkably close to, you know, what we understand now of the relationship between energy and matter equals mc squared. Uh, they were clearly on to something there. Uh, now, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't magic. This wasn't some magical, mystical insight. Uh, this was simply observation and they had a strong sense they were they were well aware for a long time before that of this idea of field theory of magnetism they'd done a lot of research in magnetism developed the compass develop all of these things and they were aware of this action at a distance right gravity uh, all all of these fields so you know it wasn't uh, it wasn't a big leap for them in their in their philosophizing about the natural world to you know, come up with these things, uh, and this empirical observation that was so old in in China and it was dominant at the time in the 13th century, you know, Roger Bacon he talks about he's he's desperately trying to get these secret books, and that's one of the things about the the Chinese scholars and technology and all this. A lot of this was developed by artisans. It was kept in books that were. Uh, they were not widely distributed, but you know, scholars might have access to them, and they were definitely uh, heretical when it comes to European uh, ideas at the time. So he would never have admitted, he would have been executed, and none of his stuff would have been published if he had come out with the Franciscans. They were, they were most likely, I, I suspect they were the ones that funded uh, to a degree, his travels, because he comes back, when he comes back in 1256, he's uh, part of the Franciscan, uh, uh, you know, the Franciscan uh, group, Franciscan organization at that time. And there, he tried for years to get some of his work published, but it had to get, uh, it had to be approved by the, the highest level uh, Franciscans. And they were not going to approve anything that talks about this stuff as coming from uh, from China, from these Chinese scholars. They're just not going to approve it. They barely, if anything, approve anything from the Arab world. Uh, but they're definitely not going to improve anything from these mystical Taoists and Buddhists, these heretics, these, you know, wizards. And really, you know, a lot of people are probably familiar with uh, the saying, I, I can't remember which sci-fi author came up with it, maybe Arthur C. Clarke said, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology will be indistinguishable from magic. I think the reason why in Europe there's this idea, we still have it uh, to an extent to this day, there's this idea of the mystical, the mystical Asians, the, this magic. 
And, you know, the stuff from the East was so far advanced for Westerners. When they start really getting this uh, from the Silk Road, they start getting access to this technology. They start having more and more travelers going back and forth in between. This stuff was so far advanced that it must have seemed like it could only be created with magic. The textiles, the all of these things, just a thousand years ahead. So clearly, clearly these... These, you know, Buddhist monks, these Taoists, these, these, you know, mystical Chinese must have had magic. It's the only explanation for how they could have come up with such advanced technology. And I think that idea probably persisted for a very long time uh, because of that. Because really, even for the next several hundred years, China stayed far, far advanced. It really wasn't until the 17th, 18th century that the West started to get kind of caught up and then eventually surpassed in technology, uh, at least for a while. Uh, so really modern science, industry, all of this is built on the shoulders of developments from the East, developments from China, developments from the Arab world, and undoubtedly from the Indian world. If any of my listeners know about Indian developments in science and technology, it's something I'd love to study, but honestly, I've got my hands full pursuing my degrees, studying Chinese history, uh, studying American history. There's only so much. I want to know everything, but there's only so much I can know. So if anybody knows about advancements that are sort of overlooked, that are whitewashed, that, you know, that even Europeans take credit for that happened in India. I'd really, really love it because that's the, the place that I have the most lack of knowledge in. Okay. I, I know nothing about it. Um, so again, modern industry, modern science, it's a product of a lot of cultures over all that time. It did not just stop during that thousand years. Now, you may be asking, well, wait a second. What if Europe had been part of it? We still would have been further ahead. And, and maybe so. Maybe so. You know, technology, science, it always seems to advance when you have this, this back and forth. Within a culture, it's difficult to think of new things because we're sort of restricted by the way that our culture thinks. And so you have a lot of these new ideas coming in, either when there's somebody who is desperate for some sort of change. There's this big need within it, and so people are looking for it. Or when you get new ideas, when you have this cross-cultural exchange, now you get these new ideas, in, and wow, that just sparks all this tremendous innovation. And so maybe if Europe hadn't been isolationist and, and suppressing, uh, then we would have been a little bit further ahead. But then again, maybe we weren't because I think that one of the reasons why there was such a big change and there were there were, there was all this motivation to think of new things uh, to 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 revamp the way that we're thinking entirely to revolutionize it to have this renaissance was partly because of the shock to the system because you still have throughout all that time throughout the dark you still have this idea in the the West that they are superior that they're better. And then they come to the shocking realization that, holy crap, we're actually way far behind. And it's sort of a shock to the system that, that gets them really open to a lot of new ideas. And meanwhile, they're, they're bringing in this technology. They're bringing this in these ideas that had been developed over time. And because of the where the culture was at that point, they were open to, to thinking about it in ways that it simply hadn't been thought about in the East. So 
maybe actually if Europe had been part of it at that time, maybe we maybe we wouldn't have had some of the groundbreaking new ways of thinking. Uh, you know, it's it's like when you hand when you hand a child something and the child looks at it and sort of because of their innocence, they're able to see this way of, of using it, the way this way of looking at it that is so different than anybody who was sort of raised, who, you know, who's an adult, who understands all of it, who's sort of in this box, this, this way of thinking because of, of how it came along. They, they just can't see it. And so maybe actually we needed, you know, maybe, maybe that helped to spark this new innovation. Uh, so I'm not entirely convinced that we would be any further ahead had China had had uh, Europe not been kept in this you know childlike state of advancement for so long uh, to where then you know then they they come across this technology that's so far advanced and boom it, it sparks the thinking sparks new ideas okay because we do we do end up getting stuck in a rut. And, you know, the reason why I think, so I mentioned in the beginning that I'll talk about why I think China was so far ahead and so advanced is because China had one thing, one really big thing going for them that separated them from pretty much any of the other cultures that we've talked about. And that is the civil service system, the Confucian system, this idea. So everybody people talk about china beginning with qin shi huang and the the qin dynasty uh shi huang di uh he's the the first emperor of china he unites china uh in the the qin empire he you know the, we we've got an end to the warring states period and we've got one china right but that only lasted for 15 years and that was governed under legalism this idea that people are generally inherently shitty that mo most people are kind of crap and you really need to force them to you know bend to your will uh, if you want to have any sort of uh, success or stability uh, and that was kind of bullshit uh, not kind of bullshit that is bullshit uh, it's authoritarianism that, that's what that is and it lasted for 15 years and then Liu Bang uh, he he was a peasant who overthrew uh, he led the charge to overthrow Shi Huangdi, and that founded the Han Dynasty. And uh, you know, people to to this day, ethnic Han are the largest ethnic group on the planet. It's like something like 1.2, 1.3 billion people identify as ethnic Han. And so, I actually think that we should look at Han, the Han Dynasty, as the real founding of China. And it was the Han Dynasty that, em, that em, or you know, introduced this sort of uh, embrace this Confucian thinking, this idea that actually, uh, you know, we're all everybody is capable of greatness. Everybody is capable of learning and growing and contributing and being a part of of this. And and it's not limited to just a few. And that you know that most people actually aren't shitty. And that we should educate everybody and we should test everybody and we should choose our who's our ruler not based on uh their bloodline or something like that but actually their education and and how much they've shown 
that they understand everything involved with ruling. And so you have the, the beginning of the civil service exam. And so China begins to be governed by whoever does best on this exam, this testing. And so you have, you know, so you have, of course, the, the wealthy people, they, you know, they, the wealthy children, they're growing up with libraries available to them, lots and lots of books available to them. So they have an advantage. But it became theoretically possible and often did happen for poor folks, people who grew up with nothing, uh, to do well in school, to excel. And they continue with the schooling. They pass the exams at a high level. And they're put. that's what puts them in positions of power, of positions of governance. And how high you score on the exam determines what level of governance you get. Now, they still had emperors throughout that time. But the other thing that Liu Bang changed, and I'm probably... I'm sorry to any Chinese listeners, uh, I'm pronouncing that probably horribly. Uh, but one of the things that he changed was this the mandate of heaven. That was the justification used for why the, the emperor was the emperor. And the mandate of heaven became something that wasn't just passed down by, by bloodline necessarily, that actually it could be lost. And how do you know you've lost the mandate of heaven? Well, the people are suffering. And so you that there's this charge this requirement for emperors to move the whole country forward not just the wealthy few and in, even within the civil service and the scholarship you don't see families dominating for more than a couple generations because if they're not able able to produce scholars that succeed at this exam then they're no longer in positions of power it doesn't matter how much money they have or what books they have in their house they, you can't pass the exam, you're not in power. And this led to widespread literacy, uh, widespread public education. It, at its peak during the Song Dynasty, you had more than 800,000 students enrolled in school. That, that's a lot. Uh, you had a 50% literacy rate among men and a 10% literacy rate among women. Now, uh, it was still very sexist, very patriarchal. Uh, I, I, who knows how much further we could have gotten ahead if uh, if women had been allowed to be a part of this. Um, but you know, it is it is what it is. Uh, you know, no, nobody nobody's perfect, and you know, and and the patriarchal bullshit seems to be true across the world outside of uh, examples like the Iroquois Confederacy, which that's a whole nother uh, podcast there. I, I haven't really talked about developments in Africa, in North and South America. And, you know, that's for a couple of reasons. One, I just don't know much about it at all. Uh, what I do know about it is, uh, you know, I know that indigenous populations, I know that uh, North and South Americans. I know that there were tremendous advancements in engineering. I know that there was tremendous advancements in ecology. Uh, but unfortunately, when the colonizers decided to take over wor the world, they pretty much wiped all that out. So we were denied the ability to, uh, they were denied the ability. Genocide, I mean, it's it's horrific. So the, the contribution to the modern world has been uh, somewhat limited by mass genocide, which is a, a horrific moral uh, it, it's, it's evil. Um, so, and then there's also the problem that I just don't know about the contributions for those areas. So again, anybody who does know about those contributions, please, uh, send me a message. You can find me on the website, modernstoics.org. You can find ways to message me, uh, Facebook, modernstoics.org, uh, Facebook page, 
uh, all of that. And please let me know what you know that I don't know. So we've got all this, the, this expansion of opportunity to much, much more of the population than in anywhere else that I know of in the world. Uh, and you've got this trade, the trade across the, the Silk Road. So you've got a lot of multiculturalism. Actually, when people traveled to China, when you read about these early travelers traveling from Europe, I'm talking about 13th century traveling to, uh, to China, they come across, they come to this area and they find people from all over the world, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, all over the place are thriving in China. China was highly multicultural, at least in the cities. And this influence, this opportunity, the, the, the lack of feudalism as it existed in Europe, it just made innovation more possible. Because if you take the premise that innovation can come from anyone and anywhere, well, when you expand access to the resources that are needed to in innovate, then you should expect more innovation. So it's really not surprising at all. And that's, you know, another why we reason why we continue to see innovation in the world today in places that have this expanded opportunity, you see widespread innovation. Shock of shocks. It's not about being smarter or better or anything like that. It's just about numbers. You, you, you know, when you believe that only this select few are great and therefore only these select few are going to have access to resources, then the only innovations you can get are from that select few po uh, portion of the population. When you expand that to everyone, because you realize that actually every group of people, every race, every wealth class, whatever, however you want to define it, every gender, all of this, people innovate or people are capable of innovation. And you expand that opportunity, you're going to increase innovation. And then, you know, why did that die off? That pretty much ended in uh, around the year 1500. Well, that's another podcast entirely. Uh, that's a matter of great speculation among history academia. But uh, anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I have no problem speculating. So I'm going to go ahead and speculate about that, I think that we can see a lot of uh, really solid reasons there as to why China stopped innovating at that point in time. And you know what? Maybe that even has will give us some insight into where we're at in the world today and some of the problems we might be facing right now. So, okay, uh, hopefully this has been an interesting podcast, despite what I said in the last podcast about not just simply rambling on and on. I found that I, if I don't just do podcasts like this, then, well, I have fewer podcasts. So I think I'm going back to this. And if you don't like my ADHD ramblings, well, sorry. I guess that's just kind of how I am. All right. Hope you've enjoyed it. Good day to you now. Bye-bye. <laughs>